0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman, and yes, I've been away for a while, but now I'm back and I have a great lineup of future guests, including Marixa Lasso and Melissa Johnson, among others. So stay tuned for those. My guest today is Elena Schneider, and we'll be talking about her book, The Occupation of Havana, War, Trade, and Slavery in the Atlantic World, published last year by UNC Press and the Omohundro Institute. If you thought you knew about the British occupation of Havana in 1762, you can throw it all away. She tells a new and really fascinating story about that occupation and more broadly about the 18th century Atlantic world and the centrality of enslaved people in fighting imperial wars and really just about anything else that happened there. Hi, Elena. I am so happy to be talking to you today. Hi. Thanks for having me, Alejandra. So I'm just going to jump right in. I really enjoyed this book, and um, I I was really struck by how many historiographic commonplaces you managed to overthrow. Um, I want to get to many of them, um, but, I'm, but I want to start actually by asking you if there was a moment in the archives, or maybe not in the archives, when you realized that you would be able to retell this story in a whole new way.
0: Yeah, I I think there were... Two moments, um, two moments, one maybe more powerful for me than the other, (laughs) but um, of the many historical commonplaces that I was um, able to try to revise, um, one of them was this idea that Havana was a place frozen out of time, caught in the backwards um, economic policies of Spanish colonialism until the British occupation busted it open to abundant trade with the British Empire and taught locals in Havana the benefits of freer trade. So that was one platitude. That was probably the first platitude that I took to the archive. When I began the project, I thought, okay, this seems manageable as a dissertation because it's uh, the occupation itself was 11 months in time. So I can just look at any scrap of paper generated about during about 11 months of time and just start there and build out. So my first foray into the archive was in Havana. And I was looking in the uh, um, National Archives in Havana at the notarial protocols from the period of British occupation of Havana. And I had a wonderful uh, mentor in Havana. That's the historian Enrique lopez Mesa, who's recently passed away very sadly, but he said, look at the notarial protocols and here's some places to start. And I started looking at them and I saw that, wait a minute, these local merchants um, who were trading with the hundreds of British merchants who rushed into Havana under occupation, they knew each other. The, the British merchants who arrived to trade in occupied Havana were not just selling goods and people. They were trying to recoup debts owed on prior transactions and local merchants had sophisticated operations trading with Anglo-America often through loopholes associated with the British slave trade often through contraband trading so that was the first kind of platitude that in the in the hot and humid national archive of havana started to fall away as i looked at those notarial protocols and there are 24 fat volumes of transactions and wills and testaments and sales of enslaved people that are all recorded in havana and the Notario protocols and they really hadn't been consulted by historians of the siege and occupation and i did have you know the wonderful help of enrique lopez mesa who, who told me to turn to them and start there and it's it would be too much to go through them exhaustively but i found the notaries that did most of the transactions having to do with sale of enslaved persons and also with um I followed the names of British merchants and saw the kind of trading they were doing with local merchants. So that was the first platitude that started to fall away. And and as soon as I looked at those sources, you know there was something kind of fishy about that storyline anyway. What? You know, that profit motive has to be explained to people under Spanish colonialism by people under British colonialism? <laughs> um, so that start, started to dissolve. And I did see a kind of... Um, looking at the city council minutes in Havana, I also saw a kind of sociability between elites in Havana and occupying uh, British officers and also merchants who came and set up shop in Havana during that 11-month period of British occupation. So I realized, okay, if the occupation itself is a different story, I need to turn back to the military campaign because how could there be uh, dance is soirees and dances and parties and theatrical performances and this elite sociability between wealthy residents of Havana and the occupying army and and visiting British merchants how could this sociability exist after this nasty campaign to blow up the Mono castle and take the city of Havana so I thought okay well I don't I've, I started with the socioeconomics of occupation and I wanted to look at a more blended view of Atlantic history through a side of occupation, but um, the, the, there had been more written about the military campaign, but clearly I needed to go back into it and look at it anew with fresh eyes and in light of what I had found about this kind of elite sociability under occupation, what was happening during the siege. So that was the other moment in the archive. That was a, a moment of a kind of aha moment. And that was in the archive of the Indies. And I thought, okay, I never really thought of myself as a military historian. Military history was seen as sort of popular history and not something I was taught in graduate school. And um, uh, I didn't think that this project, I, I thought that there had been enough written about the military aspects. I should focus on other aspects. But then I saw, okay, I can't understand a Military occupation without looking at the campaign, the six-week campaign, military campaign beforehand. Um, so I went to the archive of the Indies, and I called up a legajo that was correspondence between different Spanish commanders defending Havana during the siege. So it was just a six-week window of time, and one box of documents It's delivered to me in those wonderful cowhide boxes tied with a big red ribbon and I, I untied it, and I'm sitting there in the archive of the Indies, which is a fantastic place to work. I'm listening to the clop, clop, clop of horses and carriages going outside. I see the orange blossoms on the trees outside, and I just decide to read this big pile of correspondence like it's a novel. Just read it all the way through, which you rarely do. You usually kind of fish through the goggles for pertinent documents. But I thought, all right, I don't I don't know what to think. I'm curious about if elites were involved in this military campaign, did they just leave the city? And I'm curious, how could everyone get along so well under occupation uh, after this military campaign? So what happened in the campaign? And as I'm reading through, first of all, it was amazing to watch the way that the paper itself started uh, expressed in the forms it took showed me the drama an urgency of the campaign, people were running out of paper, So responses were rushed and written on the backs of letters. And as conditions got more dire later in the, um, the military, in the defense of Havana, um, I'd see, you know, the papers are getting smaller or there were no responses. So I, I felt really caught in the moment and the play by play of what happened in the course of reading through this. And I also saw what was incredibly evident was that black people were all over this story. They were the center of this story that by uh, white people and especially white elites left Havana during the siege. Uh, Enslaved people from Havana's hinterland were told they'd be set free if they volunteered for the campaign. So hundreds and hundreds came in, if not thousands. The city was black majority during the course of the siege. And this was a whole variety of different people of African descent, uh, elite free blacks in Havana who are members of the militia, and enslaved Bosales just arrived from Africa who'd been laboring in tobacco farms or sugar farms in the back uh, backlands of Havana, and even people from the center of the islands that came in. And as the siege went on, more and more of the casualties were black people. The, the musters, the payrolls from the last stage of the siege of militia who were still um, serving and and guarding Havana's flank from British advances, those were almost all black militia members and enslaved people organized impromptu uh, groups of, of soldiers. So I saw, wait a minute, <laughs> this is a story that is not the version that I'd read in the prior histories of the siege of the military campaign. And that both people of African descent in Cuba were at the center of this military campaign And the dynamics of the slave trade and the kinds of relationships built between wealthy uh, Havana residents and British merchants, they were at the center of the story of the occupation. So with those two sort of aha moments and insights, I decided I could build a bigger argument here and sort of spin out the story in a bunch of different directions.
1: Yeah. And you, you do, you do spin it out in, in so many different uh, ways. But the, the, the story of the sort of material archives um, makes clear one of the things that the book does really nicely which is includes all of these people like really like um quite detailed stories of people you don't often read about so for example i want to talk about the the woman that you open the book with mm-hmm. maria del Carmen, who was born in jamaica Bought her freedom in Havana, goes back to Kingston, yeah. where she's able to find a merchant who knew the Spanish notary yeah. that she bought her freedom from, and, and he vouches for her freedom there. And what's really remarkable is that the the sort of um, that story introduces one of your main arguments. I mean, first of all, it's about these people who are going back and forth, and the and the centrality of of black people to the story, but also the really interrelated nature of British and Spanish. Um, colonialism, even before the occupation, as you were saying earlier. Mm -hmm. I thought,
0: um, I mean, I was in graduate school and conceiving of this project at the era in Atlantic history that we now talk about as maybe the era of the flagged Atlantic (laughs) worlds, where there were a lot of comparative studies that spoke (laughs) separately about the British Atlantic and the Iberian Atlantic, or the Spanish, Portuguese, Dutch, uh, Danish Atlantic, French Atlantic. And um, I was in graduate school right when John Elliott's comparative work on British and Spanish Atlantic worlds came out. And, of course, I'd read Patricia Seed's book on Ceremonies of Possession. And so there was a lot of energy at that time of sort of comparing and contrasting uh, different, the differences between the varieties of European colonialisms in the Atlantic world. And they were they were overdrawn and almost caricature, the differences. So even in selecting my dissertation topic, I knew that I wanted to find a site. Well, if I looked at a British occupation of a Spanish colonial space, what would that look like? How would that sort of work against these caricatured descriptions of, I mean, of of all the differences between different types of colonialism? So that was a sort of agenda going into it. And then the things I found led me farther into that argument, which as you point out, is an argument that Havana was an interconnected space uh, before, during, and after its occupation by the British. Um, and that these uh, British and Spanish expansion in the Atlantic world were not just entangled but mutually constituted. They weren't matched. They couldn't have existed apart from each other. Um, so that was an argument that I sort of was able to spin out by um, building out from what I saw in the occupation. But the woman I began with, Maria del Carmen, um, that you just referenced, um, she was someone who I I saw... Uh, uh, just a, you know, a couple paragraphs about her and the manumission roles in um, the National Archive in Spanish Town in Jamaica. And I, I went to check the manumission roles and I spent a couple weeks researching at uh, the National Archives and, in Spanish Town. And I, I went in there in the manumission roles looking for stories of, of enslaved people, potentially who were in Cuba at the time of the British siege who maybe deserted to the British side and were manumitted for helping the British attack because that was a big fear on the Spanish side that this would happen. So I was looking for any, or or I was even looking for Jamaican enslaved conscripts who were taken on the campaign along with the British and who were manumitted for any especially gallant service uh, aiding the British campaign. And then there she was. And it also, I think part of, under, you know, seeing the potential there was that her Carta de Libertad from Havana was copied in Spanish in the manumission the book of manumissions that I was looking at, and I think you know a lot of Jamaican historians were probably not bothering to go through what is this weird segment in Spanish and uh, what is this about, and and I didn't really know what to make of her initially, um, but I was sort of haunted by her, and to th- think of someone. Um, whose life and experience moved back and forth between these islands and then a certain kind of leverage that she was able to gain by these competing imperialisms that she was able to uh, move back to Jamaica uh, but preserve a main mission that she had achieved only because of Spanish law. That uh, So I was able to sort of circle back to her and see later on how her, her life embodied an argument that I wanted to make about how deeply interconnected and enmeshed these spaces were and particularly there was this special kind of nexus between commercial worlds of Kingston and of Havana, and that the the circuits that connected those spaces were slave trading and uh, associated contraband trade.
1: Right. And the importance of slavery and the slave trade in, in those kind of pre-sugar boom days is something that you don't often read about in terms of the Cuban historiography. Uh, I was really sort of interested to hear how you piece that story together, especially since, as you say, a lot of it was about contraband and, you know, smuggling and um, all these, all these stories that are kind of hard to get at.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I, uh, as you know, uh, 18th century Cuba has just very little written about it in general. And that's so many studies. Uh, there's uh, work like Alejandro de la Fuente's book on Havana, up until the mid-17th century. David Weed's book talks about Havana in this earlier time period, and there's a, histori- a rich historiographic tradition for the first century and a half or century or two of the life of Havana in particular. And then the interest picks up again among Cuban historians when, the sugar, uh, when sugar takes off and when the uh, transatlantic slave trading takes off, and that's usually around the 1790s. So this period from about 1650 to the 1790s has very little written about it in human history. And I, at first I thought, fantastic opportunity, you know, sign me up, I'm in. And then I realized, oh, you know, basic uh, understandings of how Havana functioned, its relationship with the rest of the island, not a lot have been worked out by other historians. And I realized actually, you know, there um, an uncrowded historiographic area is an opportunity, but it's also hard because you can't rely on other people to have figured basic things out for you already. So I thought to use the event as a vehicle to explore the world of 18th century Havana and of Cuba to some extent, all of Cuba to some extent, to explore it more broadly and to, to explore the relationship of 18th century Cuba before sugar boom to the Atlantic world. So I wanted to write a book that would be a starting point for anyone interested in 18th century Cuba more broadly, and not just uh, this particular event of British invasion and occupation. And I think, uh, I mean, Spanish, Spanish colonial archives are so rich, and tracing contraband is perhaps easier than he thought, even in the Spanish archives. So there was reading against the grain, there was looking at cases of people intercepted, smuggling, um, looking at letters of despairing Spanish colonial officials on the south coast about the frequency of trade and the kinds of describing the contraband trade and the smuggling that's happening. Um, so that clued me in. The prevalence of individuals of African descent identified in Spanish records as negros inglesics. So these were most likely Creoles who'd spent some time in a British colony before they were sold or smuggled to Cuba. These were all bits of evidence that I could work with in Spanish colonial archives. And then I did the thing that, you know, that people like Zem Kluster and and Jesse Cromwell in his recent book did. Uh, He was looking at smuggling in Venezuela. But I I just read the archives inside out. Uh, Ernesto Bossi also did this in his study on New Granada. But um, so, you know, it's contraband on the Spanish side, but it's, it's trade on the other side. It's the, some of this smuggling I'll never find records of, but there was a lot more open mention of trade with Cuba in British and Jamaican archives. And, and even, you know, meshing by name, Havana merchants who are, who are hanging out in Kingston, um, and, or agents of the Asiento from Havana, um, who are, are living in Kingston for a year and a half. And, and arranging shipments of enslaved Africans and doing lots of contraband trading on the side. So there were sort of different veins I could follow to create a portrait that would never be definitive, but at least very suggestive and compelling of how, how central contraband and smuggling was to this world. And then also all the ways in which uh, the Asiento made it legal, this transimperial trade and enslaved people and then also there were other Spanish policies that just, they they recognized they couldn't stay ahead of smuggling, so they would have things like an occasional royal pardon allowing those who had smuggled in enslaved Africans to retroactively pay taxes and, and then count those enslaved Africans who had been smuggled in. So I could use certain avenues of official, unofficial contraband trade <laughs> and things like the, the pardons
1: to kind of parse out the scope of this trade. And then, of course, you set set us up so nicely for this uh, depiction of Havana as really populated with enslaved or formerly enslaved people who are doing a lot of important work in the city. So when the siege comes, they're actually doing a lot of the defending or the building up of of defenses. Um, And then also, and kind of wonderfully, they're bilingual. They're better Mm -hmm. fighters. They're able to sort of... Go back and forth and fool people as to whether they're English or Spanish. Um, it, it's really remarkable stories, and they're so important and and also so missing from previous accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, so so how does how does all of that happen?
0: A lot of that that you mention um, uh, about the centrality and vital and sort of amazing work that people of African descent were doing during the siege. A lot of that came out of that one legajo that I read like a novel in the archive in Seville and this phenomenon of people's passing from one side to the other to spy or to uh, gather provisions, whether they started on the Spanish side or the British side, a lot of that came up from reading really on a, in a fine grained way, the play by play of what happened moment to moment in the siege and starting with that one Spanish legajo and then comparing it to all these other accounts um journals by spanish officers journals by english officers commonplace books by lo- lowly humble um british soldiers that were often talking about black people and the role they played and those that were captured past uh, crossing from one side to another so um that portrait and that um that sort of variety of roles that people of African descent played in the siege. It came out from the sources. I mean, they just led me there, but it was important to me in the book to understand and make clear that Havana was an African space, uh, before the siege, it became even more so under British attack and that, uh, people of African descent played a whole variety of different roles and they weren't just heroes just victims, just martyrs. They were also double dealers and hustlers. They were just as human as white people doing a variety of different things during the siege. So I feel that some of the work on black soldiers in the Atlantic world has an urgent project that I endorse of sort of valorizing this service and writing about the heroic things that black soldiers did. Uh, throughout all sorts of conflicts in the Atlantic world, fighting for one pi- empire or another, but I didn't want to narrow the their roles to just that, uh, because I was deeply convinced. The more I read about that, this event, that I was deeply convinced that in this embedded in this imperial contest over territory was a racial struggle, and it was a racial struggle over rights. And some of that struggle buttressed Spanish colonialism and made it harder to take Havana than the British ever thought because black soldiers had a tradition of fighting on behalf of the Spanish crown. Um, But some of that racial struggle was operating sort of at counter purposes to either imperial agenda. And I I wanted that to be clear. And I didn't want to narrow the humanity of my subjects in African descent I was writing about because they did all sorts of different things even though I did focus a fair amount on the crucial role that black soldiers and enslaved people in Cuba played defending Havana against British attack and making the siege such a prolonged and nasty conflict. By the time the British actually get Havana, it's a pure victory. I mean, they don't, their army is decimated. They're done. (laughs) And then the war, thankfully for them, is over. Right, and then they don't stay for very long. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, that was one of the reasons why this, the occupation had never really been investigated as a site of history because it was seen as short and perfunctory and a kind of after the fact moment that didn't really matter. And that this was uh, an element that this event fit into a narrative of the rise of British naval power, um, but that what actually went down in Havana and Cuba uh, after the siege were not as important necessarily. to uh, so that master narrative of the rise of British naval power um, and, and the fall of Spanish imperial power in the face of British contestation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it, it's always seen as a kind of pivotal turning point, but never really investigated for what, for, as such, right? Like as a, as a story about human beings and and mm-hmm. and all of these other kinds of things that you talk about.
0: Yeah, no, I agree, and I, I think it's also the mode. Those, the mode of writing that military history often takes where 18th century military history would take a battle in the Caribbean as just another site and tell the story almost deracinated from the place where it's happening. And you know, even just knowing this is an imperial clash between Britain and Spain that happened in the Caribbean in the 1760s, even just knowing that the majority of the people living in the Caribbean at the time were of African descent. How could they not be part of this story? and you just have to look for them and not even that deeply down into the archives they're they're there they're all over the the sources from the 18th century and then that became another part of the book that comes out more in the epilogue that i try to nod towards how has this story of of black military power been lost because at the time uh, residents of Havana were were writing poetry about the role of black soldiers defending their precious homeland. And it was something, you know, the king himself met with uh, black soldiers in Havana, two black soldiers who were sent to meet him at the court in Madrid and who did a display of arms before him and kissed King Charles III's hand and received a medal from him for the role they had played as his loyal vassals. In the moment in the 18th century, there was a real embrace and celebration of the role that Black soldiers had played, but it was really a 19th century story of erasure that lost this history. That's that's what I end up arguing in the end of the book. And it was um, it was really after Sugar Broome, after the opening to colossal levels of the transatlantic slave trade in Cuba, and this installation of sugar plantation slavery and a hardened uh, white supremacy and racial hierarchy. It was during that period in the 19th century that this earlier story of Black military power defending Havana became problematic. And also even just the reality of black having, relying on free Black militias in Cuba became difficult. And then there's pushback starting in the
1: 1780s and 1790s to disarm the Black militias in Havana. Right, so yeah, I wanted to sort of take take that second part of the book apart a little bit because mm-hmm. I, I found that fascinating as, as well. And and again, you have one of these individuals who who pop up over and over again in your book to tell these bigger stories. And the the one that I was interested in was Santiago de Sotolongo, mm-hmm. who who travels somehow to Spain and asks for his freedom, right? Because and he asks the king. Mm-hmm for his freedom Mm -hmm. um, because it had been promised to him. Um, And then um, the story of that, the sort of the denial and the the unredeemed promise more broadly is really becomes the story of the second part of the book. And Mm -hmm. the book really does, it takes a distressing turn in some ways. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I, I use the language of betrayal and, and I think about um, in the second half of the book, um, I think about, the proud memory among black veterans of the siege and how much that memory began to sting when they were not set free. So many of those enslaved people who volunteered were not actually set free. And those black militia members who continue to serve the Spanish crowns are facing a hardening um, racial hierarchy in Havana and Sugarbone. Uh, so I tried to think a lot about how what it would would have felt like living with that memory in a rapidly changing city and at least Western part of the islands. So yeah, the language of betrayal and an unredeemed promise and of the kind of sting of that memory and also the way that the memory would have been heightened and cherished of this proud moment where um, black soldiers and slave people who who came to the front lines you know, held the fate of Havana in their hands and served the city well, and and decimated a British army. Even though they lost, they their well, defense was so much fiercer than the British had ever expected. Um, so what it you know what it would have felt like to remember that history in a place that suddenly found you to be a threat and a problem. And started in a in, in place where your traditional rights and privileges were starting to be curtailed because of the new political economy that was developing around sugar plantation slavery. The thing about Santiago de Sotolombo in particular is that these accounts of enslaved people who later petitioned for their freedom when they had been denied it, they, they pop up in weird places in the archive. That's the thing is you kind of, you can't look for them in one place. And often often anything to do with people of African descent is is just placed in a weird spot, in a in a uh, box of documents that maybe isn't even about that or even from that same date. Or things to do with slave trading or people of African descent will be pulled out and thrown in. Uh, a, a favorite section of the Archive of the Indies of mine is called Indiferente, or it's miscellaneous, basically. <laughs> Indiferente General. And yeah. so um, I'm... <laughs> So that's where I found just Santiago de Sotolongo was, his petition was just stuffed in with some slave trading contacts just at the end of the legajo. Um, so, you know, just like they, he was a man sort of out of place showing up in Cádiz, showing up in Madrid, petitioning for his freedom, um, uh, so, were the, so was the archival trail about his life. But the, um, I was really struck by how many enslaved Africans Petition the cr- the crown, and I think you know you see what I um, uh, and even after they'd been denied manumission, they circle back around sometimes and ask for it again, and they asked for it as soon as the new Spanish captain general came to reclaim Havana. They started showing up and asking him to be manumitted, and I think you know that finding is really buttressed by the rich vein of work that has been pursued on popular loyalism. Uh, among populations of African descent and also um, indigenous populations in the Americas, work by people like Marcella um, uh showing us that, uh, and also even you know, work on the early stages, say the Tupacamaru Rebellion, that it was um, you have to understand some of these insurgencies or even um, oppositional politics of these subalter populations in the Americas, they start off as a play to the crown and against local authorities, and then they evolve. But it, it helps you to understand a little bit of the, the sort of power of the sense of connection to a distant Spanish king who will supposedly set everything right, even though local authorities are screwing you over. Um, and you see that in something with the sotoloma that he managed to get his way all the way to Spain and figure that, well, I'll just show up to my king because he'll have to redeem my freedom for me
1: well and in some ways that's not such a wild goose chase because you do show that the king responded positively sometimes to these kinds of things right so they weren't kind of operating under a delusion
0: yeah and i try to make that point point in when i'm talking about um uh in this in the third part of the book when i go through these cases of enslaved people who volunteered to fight and the new captain general the conde de rica is sort of assessing hundreds of them who are petitioning for manumission and he's deciding which ones will be manumitted and which ones won't. And it's a much smaller number of those who will be manumitted versus those who will be denied. Um, but you do see that um, uh, that the, the king from afar says, manumit them all, <laughs> you know, those that served me. Oh, I didn't know they were told they'd be manumitted if they volunteered, but go ahead and manumit them. This is the soft and gentle version of Spanish colonialism, uh, rewarding our loyal vassals and then when the new captain general is on the ground dealing with the nitty-gritty of this policy and how to implement it he sees you know swarms of slave owners in havana that need to be compensated and the royal treasury has to be able to pay for it in order to manumit their slaves for their service and in fact they they just want another enslaved person, worker to replace the one that's being manumitted and in fact they were part of the reason they were uh, so sociable with their British occupiers is because of the possibility of getting more access to enslaved Africans through them. So um, the local captain general begins to see, oh, wow, we need to provide more enslaved Africans here. This is, this is how we keep our elite loyal. And there's a limit to how many people we can just set free. Suddenly we'll have this even larger class of free people of African descent in Havana, which is unclear. It's beneficial, but also a risk potentially maybe. And um, and there's a limit to the royal treasury of how many people we can, uh, can many met because we have to compensate their owners. So there's this kind of lofty idealized uh, policy emitted from the royal court. And then there's the nitty gritty of trying to enforce it in the face of local interests in Havana that warps the policy and leads to what we were talking about earlier, unredeemed promise and betrayal.
1: Yeah. And I mean, also this kind of deep irony, right, that the the actions of these enslaved people and their bravery and their <clears throat> the promise to to manumit them actually leads to leads to the enslavement of even more people, um, which is one of the, the kind of ironic tragedies of, of the book, I think, really. Yeah,
0: I think that that really uh, haunted me in the writing of the final third of the book. It was it was painful, Um uh, because I mean, I read about some of the pain of experiencing this transition in Havana through the words of some of these free black soldiers themselves, veterans of the siege, who wrote letters of protest about how they were being treated in Havana later on. So I felt I felt sort of their pain, but then the irony of of the fact that it was their own brave actions proving their utility to the Spanish crown that helped to shift. Spanish imperial thinking about the the urgency and the necessity of gaining more enslaved Africans for Spanish empire. And then that really sat with me. And the way that came out really was looking at once I had established that it was the Spanish that and in conversation with wealthy elites in Havana that decided on their own to expand and revamp and open up slave trading to Cuba. Once I established that they had done it, it wasn't just the British came in and brought a lot of slaves when they occupied. Uh, Mm -hmm. Once I put it back in Spanish hands and the hands of those living in Havana at the time, um, I read their policy prescriptions and their correspondence about this dire need for more enslaved Africans and more people of African descent in Havana and in Cuba. And the arguments they made were really striking because they were different from other arguments made in other empires about expanding the slave trade when they when these arguments were made. And their arguments for expanding the slave trade were not just we need more laborers for sugar plantations. They were black people do everything on this island. They're artisans, <laughs> they're soldiers. They and you know they can come as Bosales straight from Africa not speaking Spanish. And suddenly they become loyal vassals of the crown and they're Christians and they speak Spanish and they can become free and they can serve serve the crown as soldiers over multiple generations. That was the idiom in which this argument for more enslaved Africans was expressed. And it was one that had been shaped by these generations of black soldiers defending Havana and their most recent actions during the siege. And that's how that's what led me to understand the the, the arc that I trace in the final third of the book as an especially painful and ironic betrayal that you know these these mens, uh, mostly you know these men's actions um, actually led to this cascading chain of cause and effect that that led to their own heightened oppression and more enslavement of more Africans brought to Cuba.
1: yeah. So I've taken up lots of your time. I just have a couple more questions. One about the book. Um, I was really curious. I was thinking a lot about um, this book about Havana and how you reconcile sort of the Havana story with the Cuban story. And if you had any thoughts about how do we how do we think about that? Right, because it's it, it, the the Cuban historiography is often criticized for just just focusing yeah. on Havana. Yeah. But at, you know at the same time this is what the british were doing they were just focusing on havana right so yeah. so how do we how, how do you think about that and 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 then i thought well maybe we we just think about this moment in time as about interconnected cities and regions rather than kind of islands and and countries as we come to know them later
0: yeah well as someone here who, who knows cuba well i know you can think of it probably i think historians of cuba should think of it as maybe up to the present as as two islands <laughs> there's oriente yeah. and then there's western yeah. um there's western cuba with havana as its capital so um and in western cuba is a more atlantic space havana is a more atlantic space and San Diego mm-hmm. and oriente is a more caribbean space mm-hmm. and the ties if, if you look at western cuba the ties and the interaction with anglo-american colonies are more powerful and that has to do with navigation routes and the gulf stream and Jamaica being taken over by the British, uh, logwood cutting in, in British Honduras, the Mosquito Coast, that, those, um, those pathways of British colonialism mean that Western Cuba is more exposed to British smuggling and traffic, the Bahamas, of course, and Eastern Cuba is more enmeshed in a Caribbean space with San domingue and even with trade with Curaçao. Um Mm -hmm. and you have different uh currents and trade routes in eastern Cuba. So I think I think historians of Cuba, uh many of us are on the same page of thinking of the I the island as really two islands. And in fact, you know, getting from Havana to Santiago de Cuba, that is a (laughs) marathon voyage and takes a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So um but I do, I think that this critique that historians of Cuba too often are just are making generalizations about the whole island based on Havana is a, is a very valid one. And the an right. answer to that is, in addition to books like mine, we need more work on Oriente and more work on Santiago de Cula. I'm thinking of Adriana Kira's upcoming book on early 19th century um, racial taxonomies and the world of uh, Santiago de Cula and Oriente. I'm really looking forward to that mm-hmm. as a kind of counterpoint. Mm-hmm. Before the beginning of the 10 years war and Cuba's independent struggle. Uh, yeah. and, and then his Cuban historians like Olga Portuendo Zuniga writing about Oriente and something de Cuba. So, that's as a historian sort of answer um, that that is sort of the way I think about the two spaces. But I do think that, I mean, Havana, there is a, a lot of reason to write about Havana itself. Uh, and this slippage between Havana as a city and Cuba as an island, like you mentioned, it was very evident in the British sources that they were themselves sort of confused sometimes about is some, like if you could capture the the city of Havana, doesn't that give you the whole island of Cuba? Their their island model was of much smaller islands, and so some of the audacity of of this campaign to take Havana on the British side was shaped by um, you know more than a century of thinking that Havana was the island of Cuba, and that Havana came with this whole hinterland, Uh, and it was a model based basically on smaller islands. And so when they did capture Havana and realized, oh my gosh, if we really want the whole island of Cuba, we have to launch another naval campaign against the de Cuba, and then we'd also have to move troops overland to try to subjugate these um, cities like Santa Clara or um, Trinidad. and they realized it's a much more complicated thing than they thought. So some of that slippage, um, like you mentioned, it comes from the British sources themselves.
1: Yeah, and just to be clear, you don't actually do that. So <laughs> I hope you don't. Th- I mean, what? I wasn't saying that you did. Uh, and it's 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 really actually quite nice the way you avoid sp- having Havana speak for the whole mm-hmm. island. Well, thank you. That's I so- mean, it's
0: it was you have to be careful and. That slippage is also there in period sources, and Havana's population so dwarfed the rest of the island, right. uh, as it does today. Um, so it was important to go to local sources and go to sources from Santiago de Cuba, or the, say the city council minutes from Santa Clara, to sort of disaggregate the spaces around Havana, and even just in Havana's, you know, in the in Havana's province in the hinterland of Havana, a lot of historians will write about this event as though it just took place in Havana and those involved were people from Havana. But as like someone like Santiago de Sotolongo comes from, I think, near Trinidad. And some of the people who volunteered to fight, the militias who came in, the enslaved Africans who came in came from as far away as Santa Clara, um, came from the middle of the islands. And some of the fighting, Matanzas was also taken. And that is often just dropped out with this excessive focus on Havana. And part of the problem is that, you know the archives are in Havana. And you have to decide that you're going to disaggregate, be specific about where people are from and what's happening in areas around Havana and in small towns that are now part have been enveloped by the city as
1: it has grown. Right. Yeah. So um, one last question, Um, not about the book, but I'm curious about what you're working on right now, if you have a new project.
0: Oh, thanks. Um, I'm I'm kind of, I need a little bit of a breather, so I'm trying out two different small projects. And one is I'm taking, um, this is just an article-length study, but I'm taking pieces that were sort of slipped through the cracks in my book, um, and I'm working with cases of maritime marinage from Jamaica, people who came to Cuba seeking uh, manumission through the Spanish crown's asylum policy. Uh, And I'm trying to really situate, I'm also looking at people from the Bahamas who escaped to Cuba in the 18th century. Um, So in the book, I worked on the kind of interconnections that grew up between Cuba and Jamaica through the space of slave trading. But now I'm trying to look at how the enslaved people themselves built a kind of interconnected space between Jamaica and the Bahamas and Cuba through their own fugitive voyages by stealing boats and trying to escape to Cuba. Um, so I'm trying to like contextualize on both sides, the meaning of those journeys and how they interconnected Cuba, Jamaica and the Bahamas as, uh, as shared spaces. So that's a piece I'm working on and presenting right now. And then the other bigger question I'm working on is it circles back to things that I was thinking about deeply in graduate school, but I'm looking at the relationship between indigenous and African slavery. Um, and I've published an article and I've been working on sort of key moments turns in that relationship. And I think you know what what got me into this topic was as a Cubanist, knowing that Bartolomé de las Casas had been in, in Colimaandero in Cuba and um, thinking about how much is hung on this kind of historian's platitude about how Las Casas defended the indigenous people but advocated for African slavery. So much is hung on this, but so little has been explored about the worlds of, of both indigenous and African labor in 16th century Cuba. Um, So I'm trying to sort of spin out these crucial moments of shifts in thinking about slavery and how they interact with indigenous and African populations. And another, it connects to the argument I make in the final part of my book about the 1760s, 70s, and 80s being another crucial moment for the Spanish re-embracing transatlantic African slavery.
1: Well, those sound fascinating. I really look forward to reading the thank you. Yeah, in process. Yeah, thank you so much for talking to me today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. New Books and Caribbean Studies is a channel of the New Books Network, and you can find out more about it at newbooksnetwork.com. Hope you enjoyed it, and see you next time.